Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. Well, as many of us will agree, the transition from one presidential administration to another can be a little awkward and challenging, both for the nation and for the individuals involved in the transfer of power. But, believe it or not, the transition from one sitting president to the president-elect can be accomplished with grace, even when the Oval Office is being handed from one party to another. Joining me today to talk about one such exemplary presidential transition is author John T. Shaw. John hails from Illinois, and he holds a bachelor's degree in political science from Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, and a master's in history from the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. He has 25 years' experience as a congressional and diplomatic reporter in Washington, D.C., and has appeared on C-SPAN, the PBS NewsHour, and KPCC. He now serves as director of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. John's fifth and latest book is Rising Star, Setting Sun, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, and the Presidential Transition that Changed America. It deals with significant change in American politics following one of the most notable elections of the 20th century. Now on to my interview with John. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools And stories that are just too crazy to believe The stranger than fiction and super unique John, welcome! Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for taking uh, the time to join me today. It's my pleasure. All right. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, I um, am sort of a hybrid, I guess you might say. I, I, uh, I'm from the Midwest, grew up in Illinois, um, went to a small liberal arts school in Illinois. Uh, worked, my first job was working for the governor of Illinois. Then I had some overseas travel in Australia and Belgium, went to grad school in D.C. Then I began a 25-year um, a career as a congressional reporter in D.C. Um, but while I was doing that reporting as a daily reporter, I was um, kind of focusing on my real love, which is history. So I was doing uh, so a lot of profiles and book reviews. This segued into a couple of of books, and then these last couple, of the last five or six years, I've been particularly focused on JFK in a couple of respects. I did a book a few years ago called JFK and the Senate, and then of course the book we're going to talk about today, uh, Rising Stars, Setting Sun, which focuses on Kennedy and Eisenhower. So I guess I describe myself as both a journalist and a historian. Um, and right now I'm actually I'm the director of a public policy institute called the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University, which is in uh, the very tip, southern tip of Illinois. Okay, and what do you do there? Well, I'm the director of the institute, so I try to make sure that we are, uh, we are firing on all cylinders. Um, we, we, we host internships, scholarships, we bring in speakers. We're actually launching, a, I think, a pretty interesting program on the study of statesmanship. Uh, trying to focus on just sort of what's happened to the United States politically in terms of the dearth of of really high quality leaders. So we're launching a program on how uh, we might be able to kind of re reimagine uh, the country and the state of Illinois with more inspired and elevated leadership. So that's that's what I'm focused on right now. 
All right. And where does this interest in JFK come from? Well, you know, as I, I, I was born a couple of years, um, I was, I was three years old, I guess, when he was elected. Of course, I didn't remember that. My first really clear recollection of Kennedy was the assassination weekend. I remember I was in school, the I think first grade, and you know, November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, over the public address system. I went to a Catholic school. The te- the principal said, you know, President Kennedy's been shot in Dallas. Let's say a prayer, and then a few minutes later, said President Kennedy has been. You know, he's, he's been confirmed dead, school adjourned. My mom is from Boston. I remember going home and finding her very traumatized. And I remember very vividly that weekend watching the funeral, uh, you know, ceremonies, which was on three consecutive days. So, so that was my sort of first recollection of Kennedy. And then when I was in college as an undergraduate, I studied political science and history. Kennedy was always one of these compelling figures. Uh, as much for his potential as for his accomplishments. So, um, so I, you know, and I, I you know, I, I'd be the sort of guy who'd always, if there's a new Kennedy book out, I tend to read the, you know, the newest biography. I had sort of assumed all has been, had been said about Kennedy. In fact, I, when I'm speaking about Kennedy, I sometimes joke that um, I said, any, asp- any writer who aspires to write a book about Kennedy should ask themselves one simple, clear question, which is, does the world need another book on JFK? <laughs> now, my surmise is that each author, potential author, says, "Well, maybe just one more book, my book." Um, so, um, in fact, I, I wrote an essay and uh, a couple a year or two ago called um, "The Endless Quest to Say Something New About JFK," playing on the notion that everyone is trying to find a particular angle of his to kind of leap into, whether it be, you know, JFK conservative or, you know, JFK's, you know, uh, final hundred days or, you know, JFK's relationship with his parents and that sort of thing. So, so there is this scramble to find something new to say about Kennedy, but, but actually the book that I wrote, JFK in the Sentence, came up very kind of weirdly. I was, I was, I had just finished a book on Senator Richard Luger from um, Indiana. And I'd spent four or five years, I was doing my full-time job, I spent four or five years following Senator Luger around, interviewing him. And it was on the notion of how a senator could shape foreign policy. So as I was wrapping up that book, the one piece I wanted to know was, you know, how to think about Luger's career in context. And I consulted with the Senate historian who gave me some things to read. And he said, you know, what you really ought to do is read a book that, excuse me, read a report that was filed by Senator John F. Kennedy uh, in his capacity as a chairman of a special committee to to determine the five best senators in U.S. history. This was a a committee that Kennedy uh, chaired when he was in the Senate in the mid-50s. So I read this report. It actually came out in, I think, 57. It was a very interesting, thoughtful report on just what constitutes, you know, greatness in the Senate and so forth. You write about this in the book. Yeah. So in any case, I had, uh, you know, I had finished. Um, uh, so the Kennedy report was was kind of interesting. Helped me finish off the Luger book. And then I, I, I sent in my Luger book and, and my wife and I went on vacation the next day. And as we we're driving, she says, OK, no more books for a while. OK. And I said, OK, I promise. So the first day of vacation, she goes off antiquing. And then I'm sitting by the Chesapeake Bay. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe there'd be kind of a small little book to write on just JFK's chairmanship of this committee to determine the five best senators. 
So I put together, actually, in the course of the va my vacation, kind of surreptitiously, a proposal about you know the Kennedy Committee, as it, as it was called, and uh, so I, I gave it, showed it to, uh, I wrote up the, uh, a, a proposal, sent it to a publisher, several publishers, and they said, well, you know, we sort of like the concept, but we're not sure this is the right framework. So then through twists and turns and back and forth, we decided that the better framework would be Kennedy's Senate career. And this is where I'm going to my earlier point. As much as there has been written about Kennedy, relatively little has been written about just his Senate career. I think there's a general view that it was just, even though he spent eight years in the Senate, that it was considered just you know a launching pad for the presidency. He didn't really do much. Uh, it's not really a worthwhile focus of study. And my view is that, that you know, I don't argue that Kennedy was this toweringly important senator, but I do think he was his Senate career was more interesting than people tend to think, and I think it also shaped him in a lot of ways. And so that was what really kind of got me thinking about Kennedy. So I wrote this book, JFK in the Senate, which came out in 2013, and at the end of it, I felt like I still had some more things to say, but I wasn't quite sure how and when to try to say it. All right, so you... Uh, are the author of your most recent book, uh, Rising Star, Setting Sun, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, and the Presidential Transition That Changed America. And uh, I found that a very interesting topic. Uh, the idea of presidential transitions are not something that's written about frequently. Um, and so a very good book. I, I definitely enjoyed reading it. And so let's uh, talk about that a little bit. Uh, that campaign is a historic campaign. Any Bye. history textbook focuses on 1960 pretty heavily. So you bring up a quote from U.S. News and World Report uh, that after the campaign, uh, it said 1960 was the most intensive campaign in history. Um, and people were calling uh, that we changed the way we do campaigns after that election. Um, right. What was it about that campaign that made people think that way? Well, I mean, it was an incredibly intense campaign. I mean, you had you, know, you had an era palpably ending. You know, Eisenhower had been president for eight years. You know, of course, he was an iconic figure in American history then, the, the five-star general who defeated Hitler. He comes to the White House. There was a perception that he was more of a kind of custodian president, uh, just sort of kind of as a, a kind of an amiable um, chairman emeritus overseeing, you know, post-war America. Eisenhower, interestingly, was really the first president affected by the uh, the constitutional amendment that limited presidents to two terms. I mean, this was passed after Roosevelt, you know, spearheaded by Republicans who were just, you know, traumatized by by uh, you know FDR's you know four election wins. So they wanted to to, to do the end of it, and ironically. The first president it probably affected was Eisenhower, who had served for two, you know two terms. Mm -hmm. He was you know he was seventy at the end of his last term, and he wasn't in perfect health, but he was still widely revered in the country. His approval rating throughout his presidency was like sixty four percent. Americans loved him. the The elite class didn't, but the the American people generally did. In any case, Eisenhower's get ready to leave center stage in 1960, and then you have this fascinating campaign by two, you know, successors. Neither of which, I might add, Eisenhower was totally persuaded was ready to be president. Of course, you had Richard Nixon, Eisenhower's vice president, uh, who was had been, you know, vice president for eight years, but he was only three years older than Kennedy. He was 46. Uh, 
and uh, and Kennedy was, you know, the junior senator from from Massachusetts, had never been a real serious player in Senate politics, although, as I said earlier, it had been more interesting than I think people tend to assume. So you had this campaign. It was intense. It was, in some sense, probably the first television campaign, um, certainly the first television campaign in the sense of having debates that were very much kind of national, a focus of national attention. Um, there was, you know, frantic traveling across the country, Nixon probably even more than Kennedy, because Nixon had promised to travel to all 50 states. So you had these two candidates, you know, traveling back and forth, uh, chronicled on TV, and um, and it was, you know, widely viewed that the Democrat would be likely to be, you know, well positioned to win, just given that the, the country was more Democratic than Republican, but but Kennedy was less known than Nixon. So so you had this real epic contest in a certain sense that culminated in, you know, on November 8th, 1960, with a razor, uh, very, very close election in which throughout the night, it was really unclear who was going to be the winner. And, um, and it seemed early the next morning, it was Kennedy and, uh, such the transition began. What you've described is the type of campaign that we identify as pretty standard for a presidential campaign. Right. But if you lived in 1960, it's fairly new. That's right. That's a good point. I mean, now, you know, we look at that campaign as maybe even somewhat docile, you know, the, the, the candidates, I mean, they didn't love each other, but they, you know, their language was far more elevated than what we're used to uh, hearing now. Um, and it, so, yeah, it was, in some sense, it was the beginning of the modern era of presidential campaigns. And you'll, a number of books on the 1960 campaign play on the theme of the first modern campaign or, or words to that effect. So in some sense, your, your, your point is right, Kevin. I mean, it was fairly standard fare um, as far as, you know, we're used to. But here, you know, in, in 1960, it, it seemed to uh, augur a different approach to presidential campaigns. Now, in the campaign portion of the book, um, you tend to see the 1960 campaign less about JFK and Nixon and more as a contest between JFK and Eisenhower in many ways. That's right. And I, I, I think that's the lens that that's to me most helpful because Kennedy was a smart guy and he realized that he um, that there was little to be gained by running against Dwight Eisenhower. He is this iconic national figure, still respected and revered across the country. But the Eisenhower administration was seen as, um, certainly by, by the media to some extent, and certainly by Democrats, as slow-moving, reactive, unimaginative, dull. And so Kennedy felt like he needed to, uh, to sort of propel his candidacy, particularly since Nixon was the vice president and was associated with that administration, that he should run against the Eisenhower administration while being pretty careful not to, to attack Dwight Eisenhower personally. So, so he, uh, you know, he, he sort of hammered away at Nixon as being kind of the exemplar of a slow-moving, unimaginative, dull administration, and said, as this new decade arrives, you know, we need new solutions, new new agendas, you know, bold new ideas, that sort of thing. So. Uh, so Kennedy, I think it's it's helpful to see this election as a battle between um, as, as an effort by Kennedy to run against the Eisenhower administration without running against Dwight Eisenhower in particular. 
And that's a pretty careful medium that he has to try to navigate. It is. And I think he did it well. Um, you know, this was this was maybe where the age, uh, the, the sort of political norms of the time were different because, you know, Kennedy could be pretty critical of Nixon on the campaign trail. But and he would make veiled comments about Eisenhower and say, you know, you know, but it was done very carefully, you know, well, you know, uh, while our leadership, you know, is, is on the 18th uh, green, you know, relaxing, you know, America needs to go forward urgently and that sort of thing. So he was he was careful not to attack Eisenhower personally. And that was, you know, Kennedy's campaign style is, you know, even Nixon, he would, you know, he rarely referred to him by his name and he would, you know, say my opponent and and, he, you know, he could he could have, you know, kind of some witty uh, kind of elegant put downs, but it wasn't the kind of vicious brass knuckle politics that we've grown accustomed to. So, so, so I think the language that Kennedy used uh, was was appropriate for the time, of course, and it also helped him to kind of walk that line between hammering the administration but being respectful to Eisenhower. Okay, so let's talk about Nixon uh, for a second. Uh, what is his what is his and Ike's relationship? Complicated. Um, uh, they they were very very different men. And Eisenhower, I think, almost from the get go, you know, he chose Nixon uh, to be his running mate in 1952. You know, within a very short time, there was this financial. Uh, there were disclosures about Nixon's campaign finances that became very controversial. Nixon famously tried to respond with his checkers speech, uh, which kept him on the ticket. Eisenhower um, never warmed up to Nixon. You know, he thought he was smart and shrewd and quick. Didn't think he was particularly deep. Thought he was better. At, thought he was kind of a good analyst. He thought he was good at, like, you know, listening to a complex policy debate and being able to summarize its main elements, but not having this sort of leadership command to say, okay, and then we're going to do this. So, so I mean, I mean, he, he respected Nixon's intellect. Um, you know, he, I don't think he fully trusted him. He never really fully warmed up to him, and so it was kind of a wary relationship. In fact, actually, at one point, Eisenhower suggested to Nixon that he think about not running as vice president in the second term uh, when, when uh, Eisenhower ran in 56, and instead shift to a cabinet post, something like secretary of defense. Now, Nixon, of course, viewed this as you know a politically devastating, career-altering potential demotion. Right, but whereas Eisenhower, you know, was from the military in which job rotation was sort of part of train leadership training, and you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think his motives were probably mixed. On the one hand, he probably did not, you know, wanted to kind of get Nixon out of the way, but also he thought it might be good for Nixon in terms of developing himself. But but curiously, even like in, you know, after after Eisenhower won the second term in '56, and his pre second term is unfolding, at various points he would talk to people about you know, who might be his successor, his Republican successor. And he oftentimes had a long, long list of people, and he usually had Nixon on it, but oftentimes at the end of the list rather than the first one. So he made it pretty clear that Nixon was not his first choice as being a successor. But as 1960 unfolded, it really became down to the only two really credible candidates were, were Nixon and Nelson Rockefeller, and Nelson Rockefeller pulled himself out. So Nixon coasted the Republican nomination. And Eisenhower actually then got behind Nixon pretty firmly. 
not out of great love for him or a great conviction that he'd be a great president, but because he thought a vote for Nixon was a vote for effectively a third Eisenhower term. He saw a vote for Nixon as effectively a referendum on his administration. And so he wanted Nixon to win. Uh, to that point of a, of a referendum on, on Eisenhower's uh, two terms, um, you, you go into detail and you describe what each person was doing during election night. Um, and interestingly enough, you talk about Ike, who's kind of the most uh, depressed one of the bunch looking at what's going on, uh, maybe even more so than Nixon. What, what is Ike thinking as election results pour in on election night? Well, he was he was apprehensive. I mean, he had. Let me just kind of set the stage stage because you, you know on the on the west uh, on the east coast you have Kennedy up in Hyannis Port, you know, nervously waiting the returns mm-hmm. um, with his family. They're on the Kennedy compound, three homes on you know uh, on Cape Cod, and they're you know he's pacing between the three homes and watching the returns come in. Nixon is in California at the. Uh, uh, based out of the Ambassador Hotel, although one of the curious little side stories of election night, 1960, is Nixon was so restless during the afternoon, he actually took a a road trip. He and his traveling aide and a security guy drove, they decided to drive south, ended up keep going past the U.S. border, went to Mexico. He had lunch on election day at a a German restaurant in Mexico, (laughs) then came back. So I mean you have Kennedy, you have, you have Kennedy and Voss, you know, in, in the Northeast, uh, Nixon in um, in uh, in Los Angeles area, and then Eisenhower began the day, election day, and the White House flew to Gettysburg where he was registered to vote, voted, was back at the White House by seven thirty, eight o'clock, had a kind of a lightly scheduled day, was very tense all day went to a rally, a Republican rally in the early evening, and then watched the returns at the White House with his son and a few friends. And um, and he, he was fretting. I mean, one, one other kind of curious side note is that, you know, it was a very, very close election. And at one point through total inadvertence, one of Eisenhower's press aides had sent a congratulatory telegram to uh, Kennedy saying, congratulations on your victory. This was well before Nixon conceded. But then he called up immediately, called up Pierre Salinger, Kennedy's press guy, and said, hey, would you, um, that was a mistake. Could you throw it aside? And, you know, as a, a evidence of the civility of the time, they said, OK, fine, no worry. We'll just put it aside. So so but in any case, Eisenhower was watching the returns very closely. And he really believed that this that Kennedy's uh, Kennedy's narrow election was a repudiation of him. I mean, he told some aides that. This, he says, this was a rejection of all we've done for eight years. Maybe I should have just spent eight years playing golf, you know, and uh, so he took it very hard. Nixon and, in effect, Eisenhower has, has lost this election, um, but now he's faced with the prospect of um, giving the power of the presidency to someone else. Um, in a general sense, can you describe what's involved in a presidential transition? Just to set the, the context for, for what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, and particularly this is, I mean, there's there's uh, several different kinds of transitions. I mean, you could, there are, you, you might call it, uh, you might call it a friendly transition when it's within, you know, a Democrat handing it over to another Democrat. Um, but this would be considered a hostile takeover when after eight years of Republican rule, you're handing it over to a Democratic administration. And so there are just a whole score of logistical things that have to happen. I mean, both in the realm of 
of public policy to make sure that the you know that the that the government continues to function during this 10 10 week interregnum so i mean part of it is just making sure the government continues to function but then the, the, the big discussion is you know how do you begin to get the new people acclimated with the issues and the kind of logistics of running the country you know how do you uh, in the in the case of Eisenhower? I mean, how does he close down his administration? How does he run the country? How does he get the documents that he wants to use for his memoirs? Um, how does he say farewell to his loyal aides and friends over eight years? And then how does he say farewell to the country? So that was Eisenhower's task. Then Kennedy had a very different one because you know Kennedy, uh, you know. The first thing Kennedy had to do was make sure that he actually had won the election. And we sometimes, you know, everyone says how close the election was, but there were, I think, 11 states that were very, very narrowly decided. And there was um, there was significant Republican efforts to see if those um, state results could be overturned. The Republicans dispatched scores of lawyers and election officials to go to these 11 states to kind of check out the uh, what you know what was going on and see if there was grounds for an appeal. So the first thing Kennedy had to do was make sure he won the election. So he had some smart, shrewd people making sure that none of these 11 states' results were, were changed. But until the Electoral College actually voted in December to confirm his victory, even though he affected a nonchalance in public, Privately, he was he was he was enough worried that he had some smart people looking at it. So first thing he had to do was was get ready to get to secure his win. Then he had to do the, the sort of logistics of hiring a staff, uh, a White House staff and then a cabinet. He had to put together a policy agenda. He had been campaigning for four years and had been pretty much promising something to everyone. And so he really didn't have a coherent agenda. He also had to figure out how to leave his Senate seat. He was still a sitting senator, and he wanted to resign the seat in such a way that uh, there would be kind of a, a seat holder for two years, and then one of his brothers could run in 1962. So there was a fairly intense negotiation that, gone, that went on behind closed doors um, between Kennedy and the Democratic governor of Massachusetts, who, who, who hated Kennedy. And then Kennedy didn't like him either. So there was a, a very kind of tense negotiation that was going on there. So you had that, all these things going on. And then Kennedy also wanted to give a farewell address to the people of Massachusetts. He also wanted to write a, uh, an inaugural that he thought would be a hallmark of his, uh, of his presidency. So Kennedy had lots of things going on. And I think also what's really interesting when you, when you deconstruct this period is that Kennedy was, tra I mean, you know, he'd spent, you know, the last four years traveling around the country and you think, okay, now that the election's over, he's just going to sit put. But he was, he was a restless guy. And he was, so he, for over this 10 week period, yeah, I guess you would say his base of operations was um, Washington DC, his family, he and his wife had a, a townhouse in Georgetown. But he spent a big chunk of it uh, at the family estate in Florida. Um, he also, the family had, a, had a, a penthouse in New York City. So he was going from Washington to Florida to New York City. Uh, and even in Washington, he was spread out between you know, his personal home, his Senate office, the Democratic National Committee headquarters. It was Did he get any chance to recuperate after the campaign? Well, you know, he actually, the first, you know, he spent a couple of days in, um, in Hyannisport after the results. And then he went down to Florida. And actually for the first two weeks, he did 
the, the first two weeks or so was largely spent in Florida. And he was golfing a lot. In fact, far more than Eisenhower did. Um, you know, he was swimming, reading books, watching movies. He, you know, for me, he had about two weeks where he did decompress. But again, you know, he, he's, um, you know, he still was, um, you know, he was still trying to gear up for the, the big challenge ahead. And at one point, he was grumbling to his father down in Florida that, you know, all these, you know, he's trying to get a little vacation and, you know, all these, you know, these pressing matters about personnel and policy and all. And so he's grumbling to his father. And his father said, hey, if you don't like it, the other guy will take the job, you know. Uh, no sympathy for, there. Yeah, effectively he says, quit whining, son. You could have worse problems, you know. So that was um, – but Kevin, I might even tell kind of a, an interesting, funny story in that first couple of days in Florida, where Kennedy, um, Kennedy and Nixon. This was a, literally a week after the election, and Kennedy and and Nixon were both in Florida resting up after the campaign, and Kennedy came across, you know, with the help of some of his aides, came up with the notion that it would really be important for him to go and meet with Nixon, not because he wanted to meet with Nixon, uh, not for any reason other than to have the kind of public perception of him as, you know, the, 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 the triumphant victor, you having the, you know, the, the magnanimous graces to go and meet his mm -hmm. defeated rival. And so it was, it was, it was kind of pitched as this very magnanimous gesture, but it was a very shrewd political move to make it look like, you know, the election results were fully in and, you know, Nixon, you know, was, was, you know, greeting his defeat you know he was he was uh, accepting his defeat so they had a meeting and by all accounts it was a difficult one they were in a bungalow and in, in a hotel i think in key biscayne um, it was just an awkward conversation but then beating each other up for months you know, had these very high stakes debates and that has to be difficult so, to sit in the same room with someone who's right, been yeah. berating you for constantly yeah yeah and well and it's funny because they're really the fullest account of that meeting is was is by Richard Nixon in one of his memoirs, but it, it doesn't strike me as a fully credible one because he says that like fairly early in that meeting, Kenny said something like, "Well, I guess we still don't really know who won the election." Now I have a hard time thinking that Kennedy would have made that confession to Nixon. You know, he might have believed that, but it's hard. I mean, he might have said, "Hey, close election," but it's hard to believe that he said as Nixon claimed that he, in some sense, suggested that the outcome of the election was still uncertain because the purpose of that meeting was exactly the opposite, to just confirm that... Close the door on... Close the door and move forward, yeah. Uh, after resting up for just a, a little bit, um, Kennedy now has to start working with, with Eisenhower pretty regularly to figure out how they're going to transition staff and get up to speed on how to run the White House. Um, can you contrast their two personalities, uh, JFK and, and Ike? Yeah, I, I can. I mean, they you 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 would be hard put to find two people who are more dissimilar. Uh, you know, let's go to Eisenhower first. You know, okay. seventy years old. Uh, you know, born in Texas, raised in Kansas, uh, West Point guy, uh, career military, rose up the ranks, became a five-star general defeated Hitler, one of the most celebrated military leaders, I think, certainly in American history, arguably world history. Um, you know, and Eisenhower was a different, I mean, he was a, a curious personality. He was, you know, his public uh, 
his public uh, persona was genial and affable and kind of plodding. Um, but in truth, he was he was actually more extroverted than Kennedy. I mean, he was sort of a chattering sort of guy. Um, he was. You wouldn't expect uh, that. I, you wouldn't expect that. You know, he was he was a. I mean, yeah, you know, he, he liked to banner with people. He liked to grill steaks. He liked to play golf with buddies. Loved to play cards with his friends. Um, he was like that. But I should also say, when he, when, when he was at work, I mean, he was all business. He was a tough, hard-nosed professional, very much into planning, into careful staff work. Um, he was uh, insistent that the administration generate all sorts of records of their debates, their discussions, et cetera. So he created this sort of mountain of paper developed some very intricate structures to, dis to, to discuss issues and decide issues. Um, Eisenhower, again, you know, his public per persona, persona is very genial, apparently had a very explosive temper and, you know, he'd blow up quickly, but then it would pass very quickly. Um, the other thing that I found really striking, Kevin, is that Eisenhower, as much as when you, if you watch some of his speeches, I mean, he's this plodding, very, very uh, non-impressive public speaker. He's an amazingly good writer, um, not in the sort of poetic way, but just clear, precise, um, you know, just it's, it's almost a, a master class and just kind of clear professional writing. If you look at some of Eisenhower's, you know, some of his letters he's written, his diary, it's just, it's really quite impressive. Well, you so let's about how many drafts he would run through uh, in preparing written statements. Yeah, he was, he was in a, he was, well, that's where maybe Kennedy and Eisenhower were like, they both were just fierce editors. I mean, they just, uh, they, but Eisenhower, uh, you know, would, would go through many, many drafts. I mean, some of his speech writers thought that he reached a point of diminishing returns where some of the, his initial edits were really great. But then when you get to the seventh and eighth graph, you know, your uh, revision, you're sort of, in, you're adding back stuff that you had eliminated earlier. And it was a little unclear that, you know, as he went further in the process, um, you maybe you know, he was editing too much, but so that that's sort of in a in a brief nutshell Eisenhower Kennedy uh, very different Kennedy was forty three so he was twenty seven years younger than Eisenhower he was effectively the age of Eisenhower's son you know obviously from a famously wealthy family East Coast patrician Catholic Harvard he was a junior officer in the um, in the Navy during World War Two. Uh, but Kennedy's ways were different. He was he was by all accounts not a particularly well organized guy. Uh, he was sort of a uh, certainly not a clean desk guy. Um, hated meetings, hated planning in the kind of formal sense of the word. Um, was a voracious reader. Uh, he he could whereas Eisenhower. Or he, he generated a lot of paper, but he liked when a policy issue was to be decided, he liked to get all the smart people who had kind of equities in the issue to debate it. And so Eisenhower sort of absorbed information best by, by listening to debates and then deciding. Kennedy was the opposite. I mean, he, he loved to read and uh, he, he absorbed his information best by reading, hated big formal meetings, would occasionally uh, you know, pull a couple of aides aside and say, hey, what are you going to do on this or that? But it just wasn't the same kind of, you know, same kind of rigorous process. And even his personality, I think people might be surprised. You know, we think of Kennedy as this hugely uh, magnetic personality, you know, charismatic. But by all accounts, he was, a I mean, he was very smart, very sardonic, very witty. 
but he was a real introvert and he was not a, you know, one of the boys type. Um, his humor tended to be very cutting. Um, he'd go to a party, he'd grab someone who was the most interesting person. They'd go off in the corner and talk. He didn't, he didn't like to work the room. At one point in his, he was telling an interviewer, he says, when I'm on an airplane, I'd rather be reading my book than talking to the guy next to me. And he thought that might be a real political liability that he should, you know, he needed, at one point he even said he thought he needed a personality more like Hubert Humphreys to prevail in American politics, a more exuberant, uh, outward going personality. So, so the two men are very, very different. And Kevin, I think another really critical point which relates to that is they were both smart enough to hire two great people to run their transitions. And this was probably the key to the transition being as successful as it was. Eisenhower used his chief of staff, a guy by the name of Wilton Persons, career military guy who'd spent a lot of time working on Capitol Hill as a legislative liaison, uh, a, 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 apparently a just charming, self-deprecating guy from Alabama. His brother at one point was a Democratic governor of Alabama. Um, so he was kind of a conservative. He wasn't even really that political. Um, but just a very efficient, smart guy, knew how government worked, knew how to do things professionally. And then Kennedy chose Clark Clifford, who was still a young man then, but he was a Democratic superstar. He had helped uh, conceptualize and implement Harry Truman's 1948 victorious election. Uh, so he was one of the smart guys in the Democratic Party, was a real operative, but he also, he knew persons, they liked each other. And they met regularly throughout the transition, talked a couple times a day, and were utterly determined to prepare Kennedy and Eisenhower substantively for this transition, but not have it played out in the newspaper. So they, they developed a kind of a banal formula to tell reporters who would check, track them down, you know, we're making good progress or, you know, a couple cliches. But this was not a transition that was being played out on, uh, on the nation's newspapers. They, it was kept pretty close to the vest. And we might be tempted to think of a transition as JFK and Eisenhower huddled in the Oval Office for 10 weeks as Eisenhower shows them how to do the job, but that's not really how it works at all. It's not. They actually, as it turns out, they only met twice. Um, the first meeting was on December 6th, so about a month after the election. Clifford and Persons prepared it very, very carefully. They spent weeks preparing this, uh, figuring out, you know, what, what does Kennedy want to talk about? What does Eisenhower want to talk about? You know, who do we need to have in there? So they went through an elaborate planning process. Um, and they even carefully arranged even just the logistics of Kennedy's arrival at the White House. Um, you know, the Kennedy people uh, had been, you know, loved JFK, of course, but they were frustrated to death with his lack of punctuality. He was always late. And they're saying, you know, this is the one time you can't be late. So, so they're reading on December 6th. You know, Kennedy leaves his house in Georgetown, you know, plenty early, is driven, uh, driven to, the, um, to the White House. Actually is arriving so early that Kennedy says, I can't arrive this early. I look stupid. I look like an amateur. So they circle the White House and they get caught up in a traffic jam. And so he ends up arriving a minute or two late. It wasn't overly late, but a minute or two late. Um, and Eisenhower, who we never think of as this you know, hero of stagecraft, but he had, he had put together this very tasteful welcoming ceremony, had a military bands playing. Um, and then it, they, they, he met him at the North Portico of the White House. 
And, and there's this great photograph, which I include in the book, in which Kennedy is walking up the steps to the North Portico, and Eisenhower is reaching down to shake his hand. And it looks very, very much like, you know, sort of a young man walking up, up the steps to greet his father who's looking down on him. And I, you know, I haven't seen documents to this effect, but I just have to believe that this choreography was not a mistake, that Eisenhower wanted this whole, wanted the, the takeaway visual of this first encounter to be him kind of towering over Kennedy, looking down on him. Sure, um, sure. And I might add that this is, to me, was interesting is that, you know, Kennedy, uh, Kennedy's eight years in the White House, in the Senate, coincided with the Eisenhower presidency. So they were in Washington for eight years at the same time. But as best I can tell, they had never had a one-on-one -on -one meeting. Now, they'd been in some big group meetings, you know, bill signing ceremonies and such, but they had never really had, they had not had a one-on-one -on -one meeting. So this was to be the first one-on-one -on -one meeting between the two. And, and as I said, it was well-prepared, you know, in terms of policies and procedures. But Kennedy also, I think, read Eisenhower in the moment well. I mean, he, you know, he arrived without an entourage. He was extremely deferential to Eisenhower. You know, he listened. He asked questions. He had, you know, kind of he was respectful. And Eisenhower won, went away from that first meeting just strikingly impressed by Kennedy. He, was, he, he basically told Ace, I wasn't expecting that. You know, this guy is an impressive, this is an impressive dude that just came in here. Um, and so, um, so that was the first meeting they had. Um, and it was important because it triggered a lot of, of the mechanics of the transition. But they then only met a second time with, on January 19th, the day before the inauguration. So to your question, you know, even though this this transition involved these two teams intimately, Kennedy and Eisenhower actually only met twice during this ten week period. The transition is is structured in such a way. It's it's interesting that the the president elect doesn't necessarily get a any kind of training program. The current right. president is the president until that moment of inauguration, and then new president starts the job. Um, were there any any challenges there with Eisenhower having complete control of the presidency and JFK not being president whatsoever up until that moment? Well, interesting. First of all, Eisenhower used the language of the language carefully, and he he referred to all of this as a transfer rather than a transition. And his view, to your point, was he was president until January twentieth, nineteen sixty one. And then Kennedy was president. So, uh, you know, in his view, it was not a kind of gradual handing over of power that unfolded in stages and, you know, was, was reached fruition on Inauguration Day. His view was, I'm in charge until, you know, Kennedy's in charge. Um, that having been said, I mean, Eisenhower, there was a couple critical decisions that were going on in terms of international economic policy in terms of Cuba, in terms of Southeast Asia, where Eisenhower was trying to um, trying to get Kennedy's imprints on some of his policies. So on the one hand, he's like, I'm in charge until January 20th, but he also knew that at that point he's off the, you know, he's off center stage. And so he was trying to get Kennedy to be, you know, a bit more involved in some issues. And Kennedy very shrewdly, you know, understood that there was nothing to be gained by taking owner, even partial ownership of some issues. Uh, there's a particular issue on the, um, 
uh, the uh, the dollar was in under significant pressure. There was a lot of uh, uh, kind of a run on the gold supply in the U.S. And Eisenhower put together a very intricate policy for this. And Eisenhower's people were going to to Germany in particular to kind of negotiate this with the, with the Germans. And um, they wanted to wanted Kennedy to send along a senior aide, and Kennedy said, "No, I'm not going to send along someone." He says, "You know, you report back to me what you've you, you've come up with." So, so it was a a curious situation in which um, you know Eisenhower was fully in charge until January 20th. There were some attempts to bring the Kennedy uh, people in on some policies. Kennedy largely resisted those because he wanted to have as much flexibility as he could on, on election day. But also the, you know, one, the personnel piece of this was interesting because Eisenhower also did not want Kennedy nominees for various cabinet posts and sub-cabinet posts just running through the executive branch, you know, measuring the drapes, you know, figuring out where their new offices were. So he developed a fairly strict protocol where you know, that, you know, like the, the outgoing cabinet secretary and the incoming cabinet secretary you know, were the two designees and they negotiated, you know, what people could come and go and so forth. So Eisenhower did not want the Kennedy people to be running through the White House or the old executive office building during this 10-week period. In this very significant transition, the, the United States changed direction fairly significantly. I mean, you've got a transition of power between generations, um, really, because they are separate generations, these two men. Um, but they pulled it off successfully. Um, both these presidencies are viewed fair, favorably, I think, uh, his, by historians. The, trans, the election and transition are viewed fair, favorably. Are there any lessons for us today? You know, I think there are some lessons. I mean, one, I think the important thing is to, to put the professionals in charge. And I think Kennedy and Eisenhower very shrewdly chose people who were discreet, smart, experienced, uh, knew how Washington worked, knew the protocols of power, and put those two people in charge. I think they were lucky that the two guys actually liked each other and got along well. So, so that's the first thing. It's just you know when you have have professionals run the mechanics. Um, I think the other thing that's really important is that even though Kennedy and Eisenhower did not particularly like each other, I mean they this is this story is not a bromance. These these guys were not two pals and, and so forth. I mean, they were, they were rivals and opponents, but they, they did not see themselves as enemies. And there was just this basic civility that, that I think permeated the transition. There was a sense of, it is our civic responsibility, maybe this sounds hackneyed now, but it's our civic responsibility to make sure that this is done professionally. And Eisenhower didn't want Kennedy to be his successor, but he accepted the result and he did all that he could to make sure that Kennedy was up to snuff when he entered the Oval Office. And likewise, I think Kennedy understood that, you know, Eisenhower was a revered American and that he actually would need to have a, a, a continuing relationship with him during the first months of his presidency. So uh, Kennedy went out of his way to be respectful to Eisenhower at press conferences to praise him. Um, was, you know, this goes a little bit beyond our story in the first months of, the, of his administration to brief him regularly, tell him whenever he's in Washington, he could 
you know, have use of any government, you know, transportation he needed, um, you know, sent him, you know, uh, cards and notes and that sort of thing. So, so I think just this undercurrent of just civility and kind of decency is something that I think is, is important to the country and it's important to a transfer. And even when you disagree with someone to be able to pull it off. And I think, you know, obviously we've had in the in subsequent decades, we've had other transitions that some have been relatively good, um, but others, uh, including this most recent one, have been far rockier because, I, you know, I guess I would argue that President Trump uh, did not uh, approach the presidency with quite the same reverence that a Kennedy or Eisenhower did, uh, was not expecting to win and did not have a transition apparatus that could be kind of unleashed. And, and the result was that from what I've read, all the careful preparations that the Obama team did on all sorts of issues were effectively ignored and set aside and the, when the Trump people came in. So I, I think this particular, and it was interesting because as I was finishing off the book, uh, this the Trump-Obama uh, transition was unfolding. So it was kind of a stark, you know, sort of a, a split screen world where I'm reading about this really elegant uh, civilized transition, and yet, you know, what I'm seeing unfold, you know, in real time was almost the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, true juxtaposition, I'm sure. Well, uh, thank you, John. Um, for anyone who's interested in um, learning more about you, uh, your, your past works, or this book, uh, where can they go? Well, you can Google me, John T. Shaw. I have a website, uh, and I, I have my books on it. Um, uh, my books are on it. Also, some you know some video uh, video that I've done and radio interviews and so forth. So you can either on my personal website, you know, John T. Shaw, uh, author, or um, you can reach me at my place of work. I'm, as I said, I'm the the director of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Paul Simon was a former senator from Illinois who's created, I think, a wonderful policy institute here. And I'm the director, and you can reach out to me through the Institute's website and so forth, and would be glad to answer any questions and uh, respond to questions. All right, well, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Kevin, appreciate it. Well, that's it for another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you to my guest, John Shaw, for Skyping with me to talk about his book. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to know when new episodes are available, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Also, if you want to support the show, give it a review on iTunes. It's a huge help in helping the show get more established. If you want to learn more about the 1960 presidential transition between Eisenhower and Kennedy, visit the show's website at www.cantmakethisuppodcast.com. When you go there, you'll find a piece I wrote on John's book, Rising Star, Setting Sun, links to John's earlier books, as well as the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute, and a list of resources I've compiled related to today's show. The Can't Make This Up History podcast is also on Twitter. It's at CMTU History. If you give me a follow, I'd love to hear from you. I've had quite a few new followers over the last couple weeks, um, which is really awesome. I'd love to get to everyone in, in acknowledgments, but uh, I'm not going to get to everybody. I want to say thanks to some new followers, Fakir and Bragi, HX of the Cops Podcast, History with Cats, yep, that's exactly how it sounds, look it up, Heidi and the Gang at Cinema Science Podcast, Joan of Snark, which is pretty clever, future guest on the show, Dean Robb, has followed the show, and past guest from episode number four, Dr. Catherine Tempest, glad to have her following the show. 
Also, a huge thanks to Brian Fry from Pontifax and Jess and Joe from the Cutting Class podcast for a shout-out they did last week for Follow Friday. All right, that's it for me. See you back here in two weeks for our next episode, which will drop on November 27th.